not the way you smile that touched my heart. It's not the way you kiss that tears me apart. Oh, many, many, many nights go by. I sit alone at home and I cry over you. What can I do? Baby, it's you. Sha la 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 la. Baby, it's you. Sha la 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 la. Sha la la la. You should hear what. Hello again, and welcome to I've Got a Beatles podcast with Dave coming at you solo today with another interview. And I'm very excited to welcome Jude Sutherland Kessler to the program. Who uh, I didn't meet you, I don't think, at the Altoona. Uh, Pennsylvania Beatles uh, convention, but uh, conference, but I do share space with you in the new book, New Critical Perspectives on the Beatles, Things We Said Today, which is edited by uh, Ken Womack and Katie Kaporch. So uh, it's very exciting to be in there, and I'm very pleased to welcome you to the show. Thank you so much. I honored to be here. I have told you before we went on air the how long I've wanted to be on your program, and I really respect you have such depth of musical understanding. Of course, that's what you do for a living. You, you teach music, and that's your degree, but you see the Beatles. I come at the Beatles from the biographical, historical side of the game, and you come from the musical side of the game, and it's just such an honor to be speaking with such an expert in that arena because... Oh. After all, that's the way they wanted to be remembered. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And you've made such a great contribution to especially Lenin studies uh, through your books. And right now you have, I believe, three completed and four just about ready to go. That's uh, right. Okay. And so uh, you're the author of Should Have Been There, which uh, covers John Lennon's life from his birth to December 1961. And then the second volume is Shivering Inside, which covers from December 61 to April 63. And then She Loves You, which makes sense for when it covers, which is May 63 to the end of the year or so. Is that about right? Right. Okay. Right. And then the new one that will be coming out soon is Should Have Known Better. And what will that one, what, so that tell us about your newest up. book. Yeah, She Loves You ends the day that they fly back from America and return to England and begin work on A Hard Day's Night. Okay. And so the new book picks up the first day on the set of A Hard Day's Night and runs up through the end of 1965. So you're going to get both A Hard Day's Night and Help. You're going to get Spaniard in the Works and oh, wow. it's Right. At so much going on. In fact, the spring of that year, that, that spring and summer of 1964, I call the 180 most difficult days of the Beatles' career. Because as you know, they're getting up very early, around 5.30 in the morning, to be on set in time for hair and makeup so that at 8 a.m. they can begin work. They work all day on the movie, sometimes taking breaks to do interviews and radio interviews to go out and do some personal appearance, maybe receive an award at lunch or to meet someone. For example, Ed Sullivan flew over to interview them during that time period on set. And then at night, they go do live shows like Ready, Steady, Go. And they work until about 10 o'clock every night. They go home. And when John gets home, 
the Jonathan Cape publisher who is helping him on his book is waiting for him because he has to finish his, his illustrations and they have to edit the book because in his own right needs to come out the 23rd of March. Mm. So he works until midnight and get, gets up at 530 and does it all over again. And that's hard to believe. Being musicians, we don't like early mornings, and no. uh, especially that with that with that much activity every day to have to yeah. keep doing it day after day. I guess I don't know. They were what twenty three, twenty four at the time, so yeah. maybe you can get away with it. But uh, it's but still incredible. They were exhausted. Yeah. And then they go do the world tour. Yeah. And it's so funny because that's really where I'm working right now, my research. And so many biographers completely skip the world tour. Mm -hmm. They go from Hard Day's Night right into the North American tour. But yeah. that world tour was grueling. Oh, yeah. Hong Kong and Australia, New Zealand, they are on the go. And so they do that. They take a trip to Sweden. They're recording an LP. This was an impossible time of their lives, but mm. they just persevered and they, and they did it. So, you know, one foot in front of the other. Yeah, that's about it. And speaking of another kind of miraculous uh, amount of time, of, of, of something that happened in such a short period of time was the album Please Please Me, which yeah. we played a song to open up today. I asked Jude to pick three songs, uh, either, you know, they all, they all turn out to be Lennon songs that, that really means something to her and so i had you picked baby it's you the burt Bacharach cover and uh from please please me so what is it that 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 song says to you or, or what stands out to you about it you know i just talked with a gentleman at the chicago fest at the, at the sorry the new york fest for beatles fans and he came up to me and said don't you think that most of john's songs were written for jane mansfield i was like uh no. That's an interesting one. <laughs> no. John's songs were all written for his mother. And mm -hmm. he t tells you that in Julia when he says half of what I say is meaningless, mm -hmm. but I say it just to reach you, Julia. And if you go back to the very beginnings, if you go back to the Cavern Club, the cover songs that he's selecting in the Cavern Club and at the Casbah and all of the places around Merseyside, are all songs for Julia. And if you listen to Baby It's You, you go back to those early days in Mendips when I'm sure that Mimi and Uncle George were whispering about how irresponsible Julia was yep. and how she shouldn't be running off and leaving her little boy and how she is too bohemian for her own good and immoral. Mm -hmm. And he hears this. And when she finally leaves him on the doorstep of 251 Men Love Avenue and goes to live with John Dykins and makes that crucial decision to leave him behind, although she has two children of her own, Julia and Jackie, and he realizes that he's the one that's not chosen, it doesn't matter what they say. I know I'm going to love you any old way. Mm. It is the heartbreaking story of the little boy who hears people talking about the woman he loves, but he's going to love her anyway, because baby, it's you. And it was her for the rest of his life. I mean, at the microphones of the world, he sings the story for Julia, and he tells about the girl who got away. I'm a loser. I'm not what I appear to be. Here I stand, head in hand, turn my face to the wall. If she's gone, I can't go on. Yeah. I mean, he's telling you his love. He's telling you who he is. And Baby It's You is the song that really says it best for him in those early days before he starts writing his own. Hmm. 
Never heard that kind of explanation before about that song. I just thought it was just a, you know, kind of a famous tune. It was a girl group song, wasn't it? I think it was. Yeah. yeah. And But there's a deeper meaning to it that you yeah. can really see that's consistent through John's career, especially even those early days. Well, when you think about him even singing with Smokey Robinson's really yeah. got on me. He even says on live at the BBC, he sings, you really got a hold on me, mother. Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Go back. I mean, I don't like huh. you. But I love you. Seems yeah. that I'm always thinking of you. I mean, he says it right out there. You know, that is his obsession. And through his life, when he's singing those songs about the, the girl, she was a girl in a million, my mm. friend. Should have known I, she would win in the end. I'm a loser. Or help. Yeah. Or all the songs that we bebop to those are serious songs and yeah. songs about the girl who got away i told you i was listening this afternoon to the show um that you did with, with chris about uh, the collections mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and someone made the comment about for no one you know is that really a love song right and, you know i think in when paul's singing that you know, he's singing about the love that got away, the love that you really never forget because it rips your heart out and shows it to you. Exactly. You know? mm -hmm. And that's what John's singing in all of these songs. He's singing about, I'm afraid to love again. If I fall for you, are you going to treat me the way she did? Are you going to walk off and leave me behind? Are you going to drop me at someone's house and never come back and get me? Because I'm still scared. Mm -hmm. And you know, he says much, much later, it's not loving that I'm expert in. And these are the these early songs are the songs that really point that out to us. Wow. Yeah, that that something that's so fascinating about your books or the the, the way you set it up is uh, it's not I'll, I'll be I'll admit when I first saw the book, I was a little skeptical because I thought it was one of those fan fiction. You yeah. Know, like, well, what would have happened if. Right. John, if, if Julia had lived or what, you know, these sorts of things. Right. I'm not really interested in those. But then once I started reading, I thought, oh, that's not at all what's going on here. This is actually a factually based narrative, which is what you call it a historical narrative. And right. how did you get into that genre? And, and tell us a little bit about your background uh, okay. in terms of how you came to, to write in this particular style, which is very engaging. I... I picked a very obscure genre. It was something that was used by the Greeks quite a bit. In fact, Thucydides did his um, history of the Peloponnesian War as a historical narrative. And the rules of that genre are you can tell what happened in narrative fashion, in story fashion, but you must not deviate from the facts. Mm. You can add or subtract anything that happened. Now, in one episode, and should have been there, the very first book, there's an episode in which Pete tells John to ditch Cynthia because he has two prostitutes that he wants to take John to see. <laughs> and I don't tell the end of the story. I just end it. Well, of course, the end of the story was he did just that. Yeah, he ditched yeah. Cynthia right. and they went off, you know. Right. But I just, you know, I just ended it before we got to the end of the story. I just had John say something like, well, we'll think about it or something like that. But mm -hmm. you can't add to or change the facts. The facts are what they are. When I wrote Should Have Been There, the first volume, I did not realize that people were going to question it so much and say, oh, this is fan fiction or this is made up or whatever. Right. So I didn't document it. I just put the sources at the end of the chapters. Mm -hmm. Now, when I write a chapter, I footnote every single sentence that is you know, everything. 
I, I'm in to footnote 4,700 and something wow. in the new book, and we're only 250 pages in. Because every <laughs> sentence I type, and then I footnote. I type, and mm -hmm. then I footnote. And every chapter has 40 to 50 sources. So you're getting exactly what happened, but I'm telling it to you just as a story. And the reason I wanted to do that is, of course, when I was growing up, everyone knew about the Beatles. But now, not so much. And so for second gen and third gen fans, I want to take them into the world of Liverpool of the 1940s and 50s and early 60s, into the world of the Beatles as they rise to fame, into the world of the Beatles and She Loves You in the maelstrom that was Beatlemania. Yeah. And I want to lure them into that story by letting them be there, be present, as Bill Harry said, you're a fly on the wall when all of this is happening. You're actually there when John goes to Hesse's and buys his first guitar. You're there on that bus ride home when Mimi thinks he's going to get it out of his system, but John is already seeing himself on stage at the London Palladium. Mm -hmm. You know, you are hooked by the narrative. Yeah. You are getting the factual story. Then at the end of every chapter, I ask questions like, was Brian really there the night they recorded the Please Please Me LP? And mm -hmm. then I tell that story because I didn't include it in the chapter. Did they do a song as practice before they began recording the Please Please Me LP? And if so, what was that song? And things like that. So I answer additional questions at the end of the chapter. And the other thing that I do is talk about the various biographers and their differences. Yeah. You know, what, what really happened at Paul's 21st birthday party? This is what all the biographers say. Now let's look at what could have really happened according to who was there, mm. what was available, who saw what, who said what, who's a primary source, and so forth. It's a very complicated process. Yeah, it is. Sifting through. I mean, the Beatles are the rock music equivalent of or classical music equivalent of Mozart or yes. Beethoven that has just so much written about them. And I think in your uh, essay in the, the new collection, you mentioned that one of your missions is to help correct some of the myths that, that just keep getting written. And I know that's something that's came up on our show uh, yeah. with discussing the Mark Lewison book with the, the whole George Martin signing the Beatles. It wasn't just, you know, miraculously this wonderful moment that happened. He just knew, you know, there was another side to it. There was this kind of seedy undertone to the whole thing with his affair and all this stuff at EMI. So what would you say has been the most exciting correction to the record that you've found uh, in your research? Yeah, well, of course, the the story about Mimi running in a bombing raid on the oh. night that John was born, which it was I drove from her residence with Pop Stanley and her mother where she lived mm -hmm. at Ninth Castle Road to the Oxford Lying In Maternity Hospital, and it's 3.2 miles. And women in the 19... 40s in 1940 did not have running shoes. She had been in high heels. And furthermore, after sundown in Liverpool, if you were found on the streets, you were arrested. I mean, it's oh, against really? law to be out running. There's no way that she's she's running. And the the air raid sirens would have been going off. If you had been seen on the streets, you would have been thought to be a German sympathizer or someone spying or someone doing something wrong, and immediately you would have been picked up. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, 
and here's the the kicker there was no bombing raid that night I that's went the best the part of all that that was I've, I've read that right that's very early in your first book and it yeah. just was like oh well that's that again like 10 books say it's the same there's this big bombing raid it's amazing yeah. john was born and all this stuff no, no. <laughs> there was one junkers 88 shot down over egg birth which is out in in the suburbs and that's it but they keep telling that story because it plays well to an audience. Sure. The other one that you would probably really be interested in is the myth about she loves you. Um, for generations, people have said that they wrote she loves you at Newcastle on Tyne on one magical night in the yes. hotel room. Right. But... And, and for some reason, I had this odd feeling that that wasn't right. I kept hearing, and I know this sounds very, but I kept hearing, keep digging, keep digging, keep mm -hmm. digging. So I did, and I didn't know what I was digging for. But finally, I found Paul's quote in the anthology that said, we were on the Roy Orbison tour bus and goaded by Roy's talent, inspired by him, but also mm. goaded by how talented he was, yeah. we decided to write a song that was as good or better than Roy Orbison. And we did, and it was From Me to You. Well, we know that's oh, not true. No. They wrote From Me to You on the Helen Shapiro tour bus, and it was recorded on the 5th of March. They're on the Roy Orbison tour bus in June, months later. Hmm. And so he talks about he and John sitting together and refining this song and coming up with a woos and things that they're going to use in the song. Well, that song, of course, is She Loves You. Now, does that negate the fact that they went into that hotel room at Newcastle on Tyne and finished it up and then went the next day to Fourth One Road and played it for Paul's father and completed it? No, those things happened. But it wasn't composed on one single magical night. They were working on it on the Roy Orbison tour bus throughout mm. the tour. And, and so it, it makes the Beatles more legitimate because they're not magicians. They're right. hard-working musicians. And this is a big thing, too. I know Paul is very defensive about it now, and you can hear it in the song Early Days when he said, well, you weren't there, so I forget the lyrics. But, you know, basically, unless you were there, you don't know what happened. And so I wanted to ask you, how do you, when you're writing these books, how do you rate the Beatles' own memories and recollections uh, of their story? And how, how does that influence you? And do you just sort of say, well, I just kind of, I'll listen to it, but I really need to dig further. I'm just not sure Ringo's right about this. Things like John that. So. Says, John says, I remember, I, I've forgotten a lot of things, but the one thing I remember is the day that Paul and I met, and then he proceeds to give the wrong date. <laughs> That's oh, all boy. you need to know, you know. Yeah. Cynthia, uh, Cynthia Lennon in her first book, A Twist of Lennon, gets her wedding date wrong. Oh, and no. None of us remember what we did two years ago or no. three years ago. We weren't recording it because we didn't know it was going to be historically important. Mm -hmm. And they don't remember. And why should they remember? They especially were busy. Yeah, especially before they were even famous when no one even knew who they were. Yeah. You know, when you look, when you hear Bill Harry say that the story of Stu being kicked in his ribs and beaten up yeah. after the Litherland concert, which some people say is Latham Hall, you know, which one was it? We're not sure. But you hear Bill say that never really occurred. But then I talked to Pete Best, who hmm. was there. And Pete says, Jude, 
it happened. And I was the second person out the door. Huh. John was the first person out the door, and I was the second person out the door. And by the time that I got there, the guys were starting to run, but Stu was bleeding from his ears, and John had a broken little finger. And John's little finger never is right again. You look at it, and it's always weird. It's out of joint. Yeah. You, you have to try to weigh your primary sources against your secondary sources, try to delve and find out where people were on certain nights to try to make sense of it all. And it's very, very difficult, especially yeah. when primary sources give you two different stories. Mm -hmm. That's the worst. Yeah, absolutely. So I was going to ask you, how did you pick John as your main uh, area of focus? Because... Obviously, you could have picked any of them or the group themselves, but you picked John. So what was it about John that really got you into writing about him and knowing so much? You know, I wish I could tell you that it was something. My answer I would love to give you is, well, when you tell John's story, you tell the entire story from mm. that simple idea of the Beatles and Julia saying, you have music in your bones, John, you need to form a band and of him selectively handpicking that group and keeping them together and putting them together. That would be the right answer. Yes. But the truth of the matter is I was a John fan from the time that I was nine years old. I went to elementary school one day and a girl walked up to me and said, she had that 45 of the Beatles, the black and white 45 and mm -hmm. in the, the suits. And she said, these are the Beatles. You have until recess to fall in love with one of them. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? Yeah. Yeah, I do. Yeah. And initially I picked George. And then I thought about it overnight and came back and said, no, I'm going to switch. I'm going to pick that guy right there. And she said, thank goodness. That's the one we thought you'd like. That's the smart Beatle. Oh, that's my how funny. <laughs> it just, you know, but as I started listening to Beatles music, without being told this is a John song or this is a Paul song, every single Beatles song that I loved was a John Lennon song without mm. me knowing it. So there's something about that sound that appealed to me. And as I grew up and got married, my husband and I always had children in our home who were not our children. We have one son. But we always had children living with us who were either their parents were going through a divorce or they, for some reason, were in a tough time in their lives. And some some would live with us a year, some live with us a couple of years. But John is the child, the mm. troubled child, who lived with us the longest. And his story is the story of every child who feels unloved and uncared for and who is out to prove to the world, you know, you better hide all the girls because I'm going to break their hearts all around the world. I'm going to break them. You know, you, you, he wants to prove not only to Julia, but to Mimi, mm -hmm. who threw away his stuff, that he's good enough, he's worthy enough, he's smart enough. When he takes Mimi on world tour in 1964, they say in the, all of the books that you read, oh, it was because she was always so good to him. Yeah. Not the truth. When you step in and talk to the people who knew him, they say John took her because he wanted her to see how successful he was. He huh. wanted her to see he had made it. He wanted her to be impressed. Always yeah, trying to prove the, himself. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. See, see, I told you I was good enough. I told you I was going to get there. Huh. Unfortunately, he can never prove himself to Julia because she's gone, right. but he keeps writing those songs that say, I did what you told me to do. I'm, I'm going to be good. I'm going to be good. Just don't leave me anymore. I'll be a good boy. Mm -hmm. As far, even in cold Turkey, 
you know, you hear him say those things. And, and I've been successful and look what I've done with my life. So it's a story that touches your heart. You can't mm. help but love that little boy in the love Cirque du Soleil in Las Vegas. This little boy walks around offering flowers to anyone and everyone. And everyone in the entire play ignores him. <laughs> it was John. Oh, <laughs> wow. Well, he was obviously very complicated and had a lot of sides, which you've alluded to just now. Uh, so in you've obviously done so much research on his life. What are some things that re- you found really striking that you didn't know about his personality before, apart from some of the obvious things that he, he was the smart beetle or he was the one with the chip on his shoulder and all this stuff. What are some things that you really found striking about John that, that people probably didn't know or, or would have been surprised to learn? That he's very kind. I mean, anytime that you get on Facebook, you'll see someone posting about something about John being arrogant yes. or hard to get along with, or as the uh, head boy, the prefect at Quarry Bank Grammar, Dave Binion, once said to me, why would you want for me to talk to you about John? He was a salt, and oh. not salt of the earth, but a salt in an open wound. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there is that John, but there is the John that took every bit of money that he had and bought lunch, nudgers, hard rolls, and Cokes for the girls standing in the queue in Matthew Street waiting to get into the cavern. He didn't have a way to get home that night because he had bought the food for them, but he gave all that he had to make sure that those girls got something to eat because when they paid for entrance to the cavern, they didn't have money for food. Hmm. He is the John who made sure that Phyllis McKenzie's bus fare was paid on the way to Liverpool College Bar, but he noticed that she never ate lunch, so she didn't have money for both. So he would make sure her bus fare was paid when he got on. He is very, very kind. He's the one that takes Helen Shapiro under his wing and makes sure that that little teenage girl who is big in the world of stardom, but still very young, is taken care of. In so many ways, John is Mm. kind. He calls Cynthia every single night when he's on tour. Really? Every night. When the Beatles have one day off in Paris, he flies home to Liverpool. They all go out and party. He flies home to Liverpool that one night to be with his wife. When Brian says you can't take her on the America tour, he takes her anyway. When um, they're in Amsterdam doing sordid things we can't talk about (laughs) on the podcast, the very next night he flies Cynthia to Amsterdam. She never asked to come. She Hmm. never asked to invade his space. He is such a complicated person. He sincerely loves her and wants her there and brings her over the next night and says, please, no one say anything to my wife. You know, mm. he is he is so convoluted. He is the kindest, the sweetest, and yet the meanest and most arrogant. And you can see it on his face when an interview starts. Oh, yeah. Whether it's a good day or a bad day. Yes. And, if he's in that mood, you're not going to change it. But he is both people. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, let's take a, a song break here and listen to uh, "I'll Cry Instead," which was on the Hard Days Night album. wasn't in the movie, but it was on the album. And so, uh, we'll I'll, we'll listen to it, and then I'll be curious to hear why you picked this and what you think of "I'll Cry Instead." Great song. I got every reason on earth to be mad. Cause I just lost the only girl I had If I could get my way I'd get myself locked up today But I can't, so I'll cry instead 
bigger than my feet I can't talk to people that I meet If I could see you now I'd try to make you sad somehow But I can't talk right instead Don't wanna cry when there's people there I get shy when they start to stare I'm gonna let myself away But I'll come back again Your loving man can do Cause then I'll cry instead 